Trafalgar Squared, Episode 5. Emma and Nelson, A Perfect Storm, Part 2. A love born out of chaos. The love affair between Lord Nelson and Emma Hamilton is notorious for being passionate and scandalous, but what is perhaps less well known is that they fell in love against the backdrop of the Kingdom of Naples descending into utter chaos as it was invaded, became briefly a republic, then was recaptured amidst bloody retribution. What is more, both Emma and Nelson were absolutely at the centre of these events, both advising and supporting the Bourbon royal family and driving and forging the wider narrative, all while their adulterous affair was building to its own climax and developing into one of the great love stories of history. When Nelson arrived in Naples on the 22nd of September, 1798, he was a new-minted national hero, assured of immortality as the commanding admiral in the decisive fleet engagement that had occurred at Abukir Bay in Egypt, a victory celebrated not just in Great Britain, but everywhere that Napoleon Bonaparte was feared and hated. When Nelson stepped ashore at Naples, it was the first time he'd been on land for six months, and in the last seven years, he had seen his wife for just seven months. He had not been faithful. Between 1794 and 1796, Nelson had an affair with a singer called Adelaide Correglia, who lived in the Italian port of Leghorn. But this was not unusual. The hardened jack tars who slung their hammocks on the gun decks had women in every port whom we might loosely call prostitutes. But officers also had affairs, often with actresses and singers, and it was not unusual for married officers to be quite open about this with their fellow officers. We know that Nelson had Adelaide regularly to dinner on board his flagship, as Captain Fremantle made a note of it in his diary, where he referred to her as Dolly and said that Nelson was making himself ridiculous with this woman. In 1795, Nelson instructed a merchant to give his female friend ten pounds and pay her rent. A short letter survives, written by Nelson in French. My dear Adelaide, I am leaving this moment for the sea, he wrote. A Neapolitan vessel is leaving with me for Livorno. Believe me always, your dear friend, Horatio Nelson. Compared to the reams of passionate love letters he would later write to Emma, this is pretty tame stuff, despite being written in the language of romance. At the first dinner Nelson attended in Naples, we have evidence that he was still fond of his wife. A lady asked Nelson if the day after the Battle of the Nile was not the happiest of his life. He quickly replied, The happiest was that on which I married Lady Nelson. A week after his arrival in Naples was Nelson's 40th birthday, and Emma and Sir William were determined to give him a party he would never forget. At their home, the Palazzo Sessa, the balconies were festooned with red, white and blue hangings, and when darkness fell, the words Nelson of the Nile and Victory were spelled out in the light of 3,000 lamps. A party was given for 800 Neapolitan dignitaries and select English travellers, as well as nearly a 1,000 more guests who were invited after dinner for dancing. A rostral column engraved with the words Veni, Vidi, Vici, I came, I saw, I conquered, and the names of all the British captains of the Nile was unveiled, and every button and ribbon distributed bore Nelson's name. 
A new verse was even added to the national anthem, which praised Nelson and was sung by everyone. But in a foreshadowing of trouble to come, Nelson's stepson, Josiah, got drunk and made a fool of himself. The next morning, Nelson wrote irritably to his commander-in-chief, Lord St. Vincent, that he was unwell and the miserable conduct of this court is not likely to cool my irritable temper. It is a country of fiddlers and poets, whores and scoundrels. He might well have been hung over. Naples was now in a highly precarious situation. In 1796, King Ferdinand had signed a treaty with the French. In return for the payment of 60 million francs, as well as vases, statues and the rights to excavate at historical sites around the city, it was agreed that the French would not invade the Kingdom of Naples, which consisted of the bottom part of the Italian mainland and the island of Sicily. But before the Battle of the Nile, Emma had used her influence with Queen Maria Carolina to get Nelson permission to stock up with food and water for his fleet at Syracuse on Sicily, an act that arguably saved the day for the British, but which also risked inviting the wrath of France down on Naples. Now the city was host to Nelson, his victory was being openly celebrated, and French ships he had captured at the Nile were being repaired in her yards, contravening the treaty and making war inevitable. As Nelson attended a round of balls and dinners in his honour, he could not step out onto the streets of Naples without being mobbed by admirers. Emma acted as his translator, guide and political facilitator. To Lord St Vincent, Nelson wrote that Lady Hamilton is an angel. She has honoured me by being my ambassadress to the Queen. Therefore, she has my implicit confidence and is worthy of it. Nelson always believed that the boldest measures were the safest, and he was desperate to take the battle to the French. Three months would liberate Italy. This court is so enervated that the happy moment will be lost, he wrote. Meanwhile, delays to the repair of his ships dragged on interminably. An Austrian general, General Mack, was sent from Vienna to take command of the Neapolitan army. Arriving on October the 9th, he was urged by King Ferdinand to be for us on land what Nelson has been at sea. In the heady atmosphere of the Neapolitan court, Emma and Nelson confided in each other and began to fall in love. Both were with partners whose appeal had started to fade and who they were unable to produce children with. Both had romantic natures and were now famous. Nelson, for the first time, found someone who seemed to appreciate his qualities of boldness and daring and who encouraged him to feel real pride in his achievements. To his wife, Nelson wrote of Emma, She is an honour to her sex, one of the best women in this world. Within two months of his arrival in Naples, gossip had reached London prematurely that Nelson and Emma were now having an affair. Soon Emma's face began to appear on the Nelson merchandise that flooded out of British factories. All of this, of course, did not escape the attention of Fanny Nelson, his wife, who threatened to come out to Naples. Nelson warned her off, replying that he would be forced to simply take her home again if she did. Again, writing to his commander, Lord St Vincent, Nelson wrote, during a blockading campaign off Malta, I am writing opposite Lady Hamilton. Therefore you will not be surprised at the glorious jumble of this letter. Were your lordship in my place, I much doubt if you could write so well. Our hearts and our hands must be all in a flutter. 
Naples is a dangerous place and we must keep clear of it. It is an extraordinary letter for a naval officer to write to his superior and suggest that Nelson was already giddily enraptured by Emma. There is also the suggestion that he saw Naples itself as a kind of trap. General Mack's march north with the Neapolitan army was at first a success with the French withdrawing from Rome. But this was just a tactical manoeuvre, and when they counterattacked, the Neapolitan troops melted away. King Ferdinand himself scuttled back to Naples, reputedly dressed as a woman at one point to escape detection. By the 15th of December 1798, French troops were closing in on Naples. It was decided to evacuate the court to Palermo on Sicily, and Emma was given a week to assist the royal household. The Neapolitan mob became volatile as they began to suspect the royals were planning to abscond, and a royal messenger was killed under a palace balcony. Emma continued to travel back and forth from the Palazzo Sessa, arranging the surreptitious evacuation. In modern money, it is estimated that Emma helped the Bourbon royal family of Naples escape with £15 billion of gold and many millions in jewellery, all of which would have fallen into French hands otherwise. Emma personally arranged the transportation, disguising it all as naval stores. The entire Neapolitan royal family, retinue and servants, principal aristocracy with all their valuables and English residents and visitors were packed into 20 ships. Sir William was forced to leave behind the contents of three furnished houses, his carriages and horses. The crossing to Sicily took place in the midst of a violent Mediterranean storm. It blew harder than I ever experienced at sea, wrote Nelson afterwards. Almost all the royals, courtiers and servants were prostrate with seasickness. Nelson's flagship, the Vanguard, lost her topsails with the driver and foretop mast staysail. As the crew chopped away at the mast with axes, the passengers despaired. Sir William took to his cot with a pair of muskets, ready to blow his brains out if the ship sank. The six-year-old Prince Albert, who fell ill while the ship was still at Naples, appeared to recover on Christmas Day, but then suddenly deteriorated and died in Emma's arms. During the crossing, Emma worked almost without sleep for days to tend to the royals, and Nelson saw a side of her that impressed him deeply. It is generally reckoned that this turned a flirtation into something much more serious. Once in Palermo, King Ferdinand's only interest was in hunting and rebuilding his Sicilian palace in the latest style, while Queen Maria Carolina was prostrate with grief at the loss of another child. The Hamiltons found lodgings in a freezing palazzo without even fireplaces to warm them. The many aristocratic refugees plunged into a round of balls and parties, gambling and drinking to forget their losses. Emma began to indulge her own fondness for alcohol and was often seen gambling, with Nelson nodding at her side late into the night. Meanwhile, Naples was engulfed in chaos. The Lazzaroni rioted, releasing all the prisoners from the jails and slaughtering anyone they suspected of Jacobinism, meaning republicanism. The Lazzaroni resisted the French invasion, but by the 4th of February 1799, the tricolore was flying from the principal forts of the city. A provisional government, known as the Parthenopean Republic, took charge. At Palermo, Nelson moved into the enormous Palazzo Palagonia with the Hamiltons, where they held gambling parties, and Emma once again began to perform her attitudes to an appreciative audience. Tied to the royal family, Nelson grumbled and yearned to return to England. 
Palermo is detestable and we are all unwell and full of sorrow, he wrote to one correspondent. To his wife he wrote that good Sir William, Lady Hamilton and myself are the mainsprings of the machine which manages what is going on in this country. Inevitably, Nelson's stepson, Josiah, became increasingly concerned about Nelson's apparent infatuation with Emma. His relationship with Nelson deteriorated. I wish I could say more to give you any satisfaction about Josiah, Nelson wrote to his wife, but I am sorry to say with real grief that he has nothing good about him. He must sooner or later be broke, but I am sure neither you nor I can help it. Meanwhile, Sir William suffered an endless series of bilious attacks, in modern parlance, diarrhoea. He was devastated when he heard that a ship carrying many of his most valued treasures had been lost off the Scilly Isles, plunging him into a depression. By this point, the Hamiltons were sleeping in separate rooms, and we know that Nelson took over paying some of Emma's expenses, an indication that their affair had become sexual. In fact, like teenage lovers, they were obsessed with each other. Soon, rumours spread that Nelson was making himself ridiculous with Emma and neglecting his duties. Captain Thomas Truebridge, who was as close to Nelson as any of his fellow officers, warned Emma that people were gossiping about her influence on Nelson. In a letter to Nelson, he begged him to stop gambling, writing, Pardon me, my lord, it is my sincere esteem that makes me mention it. I know you can have no pleasure sitting up all night at cards. Why then sacrifice your health, comfort, purse, ease, everything to the custom of a country where your stay cannot be long? Your lordship is a stranger to half that happens and the talk it occasions. If you knew what friends feel for you, I am sure you would cut out all of the nocturnal parties. The gambling of the people of Palermo is talked of everywhere. I beseech your lordship, leave off. I wish my pen could tell you my feelings. I am sure you would oblige me. Lady Hamilton's character will suffer. Nothing can prevent people from talking. A gambling woman in the eyes of an Englishman is lost. Meanwhile, a retired papal treasurer stepped forward as the unlikely saviour of the monarchist cause. Cardinal Ruffo landed in Calabria, in southern Italy, on a January night with just eight companions. He found the native population eager to revolt against the French and was soon leading an army of 17,000 on a mission to retake the mainland part of the Kingdom of Naples back from the godless French. This campaign, fired by fervour for their Catholic faith on the part of the southern Italian peasantry, was violent in the extreme, with atrocities committed on both sides, including reported instances of cannibalism. By June, Ruffo's forces had trapped the Republicans and remaining French in Naples' principal castles. They offered their surrender on condition that they be pardoned. Ruffo had always been in favour of offering mercy to those who had turned on their sovereign. He agreed that the rebels could leave the castles with battle honours and all their property, and those who wished to quit the kingdom would be evacuated to Toulon. Ruffo and a British officer, Captain Foote, signed the agreement as did the commander of Russian troops also present. On the 24th of June, Nelson arrived on his new flagship, the Foudroyant, with a squadron of 18 sail. The Queen had instructed Nelson to handle Naples as if it was a rebel city in Ireland. 
He was to make an example of the leading representatives with an exact, prompt, just severity. The king and queen were united in wanting a Naples entirely cleansed. Nelson himself always believed in speedy rewards and quick punishments. After much angry debate, during which first Sir William and when he became exhausted, Emma acted as translator between Nelson and Ruffo, 95 Republicans were allowed to embark in boats, while another 34 returned to their homes under cover of night. On the 28th of June, letters arrived from King Ferdinand, stating that no conditions except unconditional surrender were to be agreed with Neapolitan Jacobins. All the transport boats bearing Republicans were brought under the guns of Nelson's squadron, and rebels who had gone home were ordered to surrender or be treated as though they were in active rebellion. In all, about a hundred Republicans were executed by the re-established monarchists. Ever since, debate has raged about Nelson's actions. During the retaking of the city, a Neapolitan admiral, Caracciolo, was captured by Cardinal Ruffo's irregulars and brought to Nelson's flagship. Caracciolo had made the crossing to Palermo with the other royalists' refugees, but he had left on the 4th of January to protect his own estates, which were in danger of being seized by the Parthenopean Republic. King Ferdinand had warned him to be wary of getting involved with the Republicans, but later, during an attack on one of the islands in the Bay of Naples, Caracciolo had fired upon a vessel which had once been his own flagship, La Minerva, a clear case of an officer betraying his sovereign. Caracciolo was found guilty by a court-martial composed of five senior officers in the Neapolitan service. He was sentenced to death for rebellion against his lawful sovereign and firing on his colours. On receiving the sentence, Nelson ordered him hanged from the yardarm of his own ship, La Minerva, refused him a more honourable death by firing squad and denied him the chance to prepare himself for death. By Nelson's standards, Caracciolo had done the unthinkable, turning traitor to the crown he served. But by modern standards, of course, it all seems very brutal. A few days later, when King Ferdinand was on Nelson's flagship, word reached him that Caracciolo, whose body had been wrapped in chains and thrown into the sea, had risen and was approaching Naples upright in the water. The mentally unstable king was badly shaken, and it is said that Sir William reassured him that his erstwhile admiral was simply unable to rest until he had been given Christian burial. The bloated corpse was ordered by Nelson to be towed to Santa Lucia, where it was buried at the fisherman's church of Santa Maria la Catena. Ultimately, judgment of Nelson's actions in Naples in 1799 probably comes down to where your loyalties lie. Those who admire Nelson apply historical context, as do admirers of Napoleon, for the execution of Ottoman prisoners in Egypt in the same year. Nelson later indicated that he regretted to an extent the service that he did King Ferdinand. Shortly after these events, Captain Trubridge wrote to Nelson, I curse the day I ever served the King of Naples. We have characters, my lord, to lose. These people have none. Do not suffer their infamous conduct to fall on us. At the time of the executions, Nelson may have still been suffering the effects of a serious head wound inflicted at the Nile. He was acting as an ally of a Bourbon king and queen who were demanding revenge for the death of their son, the loss and desecration of their capital city, and more broadly, the unleashing of anti-royalist anarchy by the French Revolution. An anarchy they believed could be halted in its tracks by swift, brutal punishment. 
The fact that Nelson was newly in love with Emma Hamilton, who continued to act as his translator and advisor, might be expected to have tempered his actions. Emma received copious begging letters from prisoners, many of whom she had known personally before the war. But Emma was a close friend and confidant of the Queen, whose son had died in her arms during the evacuation. And she saw things from the point of view of a fervent monarchist, someone whose entire loyalty lay with the British in their struggle not to be engulfed by the chaos unleashed on Europe by events in France. The events in Naples in 1799 certainly lend themselves to a dedicated podcast, and that is something that I plan to do in the near future. For his services to the King and Queen of Naples, Nelson was made Duke of Bronte, a title which came with a substantial estate and properties on the western slopes of Mount Etna on Sicily. Ever after, he would sign his name, Nelson and Bronte, but he never got the chance to visit the estate, which was so run down that it produced no income in his lifetime. By now, Sir William was so accustomed to Nelson and Emma's closeness that when Nelson sailed to Minorca in October, Sir William begged him to return, writing, For God's sake, come back as soon as possible. Sir William was by now worn out and deeply worried about the massive debts he had accrued as the minister in plenipotentiary to the court of St. James at Naples. He began to dream of returning to England and hoped that the British government would cover these debts. But Nelson was asked to stay on by the king and queen, which meant Sir William had to stay, for, as he put it, Nelson speaks no language but his own. Then in December, Sir William read in the Morning Chronicle that he had been fired from the post that he had held for 37 years. From around this time, we have the earliest of Nelson's surviving love letters to Emma. Last night I did nothing but dream of you, although I woke 20 times in the night. In one of my dreams, I thought I was at a large table. You was not present, sitting between a princess, who I detest, and another... They both tried to seduce me, and the first wanted to take those liberties with me which no woman in this world but yourself ever did. The consequence was I knocked her down, and in the moment of bustle you came in, and taking me to your embrace whispered, I love nothing but you, my Nelson. I kissed you fervently, and we enjoyed the height of love. Ah, Emma, I pour out my soul to you. No separation, no time. My only beloved Emma can alter my love and affection for you. It is founded on the truest principles of honour, and it only remains for us to regret, which I do with the bitterest anguish, that there are any obstacles to our being united in the closest ties of this world's rigid rules, as we are in those of real love. Continue only to love your faithful Nelson as he loves his Emma. You are my guide. I submit to you. The love letters between Emma and Nelson are amongst the most passionate to have been written in this era. Unfortunately, very few of Emma's letters to Nelson survive, as he scrupulously burned them. Emma was meant to burn his, but seldom did. Cynics might claim that as a woman whose situation was always precarious, they were a possible asset for her old age. The more romantic-hearted might believe that she could not bear to burn such fierce proofs of love and passion. In April... Nelson, Sir William and Emma set out on a cruise to Malta, where a siege was underway. Nelson and Emma were so deeply in love that they treated it as a sort of honeymoon, filled, as Nelson put it later, with days of ease and nights of pleasure. 
Nelson later made reference to the 12th of February 1800 as the exact date they began to have unprotected sex. Sometime between late April and early May, a baby was conceived. Emma was risking everything she had achieved to give Nelson a much-wanted child. In May, Lord Spencer commanded Nelson, You will be more likely to recover your health and strength in England than in an inactive situation at a foreign court. However pleasing the respect and gratitude shown to you for your services may be. The Neapolitan chapter was finally coming to an end. On the 10th of June 1800, the Foudroyon set sail from Naples, bearing the Tria Juncto in Uno, the three joined in one of Emma, Nelson and Sir William. They dropped the Queen of Naples at Leghorn with a massive retinue. Nelson's request that he be allowed to sail his flagship, the Foudroyon, back to England was refused by the Navy, and they were forced to travel overland. Before this, at Leghorn, the local population robbed the town's arsenals and refused to let the Queen and Nelson leave, demanding that Nelson defend them against the encroaching French. Emma herself spoke to the mob from a balcony, and the throng were persuaded to return to their homes. What followed was a sort of Nelson and the Hamiltons' triumphant roadshow through Europe. Initially, they went by carriage to Ancona. Their carriage overturned twice on the way and they came within a few miles of the French front lines. At Ancona they crossed to Trieste. Sir William was so ill at this point that he was convinced he was dying. Nelson urged him to change his will so that Emma and not his nephew Charles Greville, her old lover, would inherit everything. But he refused. At Trieste the population were celebrating the second anniversary of the Battle of the Nile, just as the hero arrived. The streets resounded to cries of Viva Nelson! And when they departed the city on the 10th of August, the streets blazed with thousands of wax lights and oil lamps lit up in Nelson's honour. In 14 carriages and three baggage wagons, Queen Maria Carolina, Nelson and the Hamilton's roadshow was greeted everywhere with ogling crowds and dinners thrown by dignitaries. At Graz they were met by huge crowds of people, many of whom had waited for hours to catch a sight of the victor of the Nile. At Vienna, the Emperor had tried to play down Nelson's visit for fear of enraging Bonaparte, even ensuring that Queen Maria Carolina entered the city ahead of Nelson and the Hamiltons. But the Viennese celebrated Nelson's arrival as though he were the leader of a new cult. The ladies sported bonnets a la Nelson, described as vaguely resembling Nile crocodiles, while others slavishly followed Emma's fashion for short hair, light muslin dresses and earrings in the shape of anchors. There was even a rage for wearing replicas of the Maltese cross that Emma had been awarded for securing food for the starving people of Malta. Shops changed their name to Nelson, artists vied to paint him, and the party was showered with invitations and gifts. When Emma sat for the state painter Heinrich Fugger, the Morning Post in London wrote that Fugger was Drawing Lady Hamilton and Lord Nelson at full length together, an Irish correspondent hopes that the artist will have the delicacy to put Sir William between them. Unable to ignore the frenzy of love and approbation shown towards Nelson at Vienna, the Emperor finally relented and invited him to an official reception. He was loudly cheered as he drove in an open carriage down the Prater. The ambassador, Lord Minto, observed that Nelson did not seem at all conscious of the discredit he had fallen into, 
But it is hard to condemn and ill-use a hero, as he is in his own element for being foolish about a woman who has art enough to make fools of many wiser than an admiral. His nephew wrote of Emma that she was, without exception, the most coarse, ill-mannered, disagreeable woman he ever met. A Swedish diplomat wrote, Milady Hamilton, once considered the most beautiful woman in Europe, is now the fattest woman I ever set eyes on, but with the most beautiful head. An Austrian observer wrote that Lady Hamilton never stops talking, singing, laughing, gesticulating and mimicking, while the favoured son of Neptune appeared to leave her no more than did her shadow, trying to meet with his own small eyes the great orbs of his beloved and withal as motionless and silent as a monument, embarrassed by his poor figure and by all the emblems, cords and crosses with which he was bedecked. In a word, the lord of the Nile seemed as clumsy and dim on land as he is adroit and notable at sea. Emma's pregnancy was beginning to show, but at the palace she performed her attitudes to huge acclaim. Sir William, whose health and spirits had revived considerably, also shone, shooting 122 birds in one hunting session. The great composer, Joseph Hayden, was genuinely impressed by Emma's singing voice and powers of expression, and wrote two pieces of music, the Nelson Aria and the Nelson Mass, to celebrate the visit of the illustrious Admiral. Over all this somewhat bizarre sojourn through the courts and capitals of that part of Europe, not under French occupation, was triumphant, with the focus on celebrating Nelson, the fearsome naval warrior, who had shown that Napoleon was not unstoppable. It tended to be the English officials, the consuls and their wives, whom they encountered in the towns along their route, who were the more disdainful. Even Cornelia Knight, a friend of Nelson and Hamilton's who was travelling with the party, noted this and even feared that her own reputation was being besmirched by being in company with people about whom there now hung the whiff of scandal because of Nelson and Emma's notorious extramarital affair. As well as judgment about this, there survive many sneering references to Emma's humble origins, her common northern accent and her disgraceful past. At Vienna, Nelson's thoughts began to turn to England. He wrote to his agent, Alexander Davidson, requesting that he rent him a London house by the month. In a letter to his wife, he warned her that she would now find him a worn-out old man. At Prague, Nelson celebrated his 42nd birthday, and they were again mobbed by crowds, bedecked in Nelsonian regalia, and the entire facade of their hotel was lit up to welcome them. They were not so delighted when they saw that they had been charged for this honour on their bill. From Prague, they proceeded to Dresden by boat, where they stayed with the British minister, Hugh Elliot. At a party, Sir William, now fully recovered, danced a wild tarantella with Emma and was described as performing feats of activity, hopping around the room on his backbone, his arms, legs, star and ribbon all flying about in the air. The rather prim and snobbish Hugh Elliot found the constant round of parties and celebrations that accompanied the arrival of Nelson and the Hamiltons so trying that when a visitor encountered them afterwards, he found that Mr. Elliot would not allow his wife to speak above her breath and said every now and again, Now let us not laugh tonight. Let us all speak in whispers and be very, very quiet. After an eleven-day journey, the party reached Hamburg 
where they discovered that Hugh Elliot's information that a naval frigate waited to take Nelson to England was wrong. In the end, they were forced to book passage on a mail packet. Thus it was that Nelson landed at noon on Thursday, November the 6th, in the year 1800, at Great Yarmouth. The hero of the Nile had landed in the county of his birth, but neither the navy nor the government had seen fit to lay on any kind of welcome. Perhaps because the battle was now more than two years in the past. Maybe the notorious affair with Emma was starting to impact on the way he was treated by the authorities. But there had been a distinct lack of martial glory to raise the spirits of the British public, and the local inhabitants were determined to show their native son a great Norfolk welcome. Church bells pealed constantly, and the cheering mob uncoupled the horses from Nelson's carriage, dragging him through the streets under their own steam to the wrestler's arms. Here, Nelson and the Hamiltons looked out from their balcony onto a delirious crowd below and onto a harbour where every ship was gaily bedecked in colourful flags. That night, Nelson wrote two letters, one to the Secretary of the Admiralty. He declared himself fit for service, opting to try for an immediate command that would remove him from the impossible riddle of how to now live with both his wife and his mistress. The second was written to his wife, telling her to expect him at their Norfolk home, Roundwood, and that Sir William and Emma would be with him. He had clean forgotten that he had asked his wife to be in London for his return. When they arrived at Roundwood the next day, after a triumphant procession through Norwich, the house was almost empty, with no fires lit and little to eat. After an uncomfortable night, they set off through the aftermath of the worst storm to have hit England in a hundred years. They arrived at St. Nerot's Hotel in St. James in London on Sunday the 9th of November. The hotel was surrounded by crowds of delirious Londoners, and every gossip writer and scandal sheet scribe in town, eager to catch a glimpse of the trio juncta in uno, colliding with Lady Nelson. Nelson was going to attempt to retain the respectability of his marriage while continuing his white-hot love affair with a woman he could barely bear to be apart from for minutes at a time. Sir William had lost his job and had racked up huge debts. His wife's affair with Nelson was public knowledge, and bawdy images satirising him as the most notorious cuckold of the age bedecked every print shop in London. Emma was now six months pregnant with Nelson's child. She was about to meet his wife, who had suffered the pain of seeing her husband's growing infatuation play out in public for years, and all at a great distance from her, so that she could do nothing but seethe with silent and powerless rage and jealousy. The two rivals were about to meet. So, thank you for listening to part two of this three-part account of the famous love affair between Lord Nelson and Emma Hamilton, and to an extent Sir William Hamilton as well. In part three, we'll discover how Nelson struggled to square an impossible circle, how Emma contrived to give birth to a child while still living as Sir William's wife, and how Nelson's reputation went from an all-time low to once again becoming the darling of a nation. In part three, we'll also hear about the remarkable scene at Sir William's deathbed, and how Emma and Nelson enjoyed a few happy months together before he was called upon once more to serve his country. And if you think this all sounds like a great subject for a quality epic TV series, then remember it has been written and you can see more about it at www.trafalgar.tv, where thousands of people from all over the world are giving the project their thumbs up. 
in the golden age of television, this story is just crying out for a binge-watchable, multi-part TV series. And if you'd like me to keep going with these podcasts, you can support me at patreon.com forward slash Adam Preston. So, thanks for listening, and good luck.